0: I am thrilled to announce the launch of my podcast, Soapbox Redemption. My podcast, like my blog, features the big questions served with swagger. I'm Andrew, and I'll be your host as we embark on this journey together. So, a few words on the motivations for the podcast. My background is in science and engineering, and I work in the med tech sector. Growing up, I always had an interest in the big questions fell in love with philosophy in college and ended up writing two books and doing a postgraduate certificate in philosophy. Science, philosophy, psychology, religion, well-being, the big questions and how these all intersect. The aim of my writing is ultimately the aim of my podcast, which of course will be served with swagger. The genesis of this podcast ultimately originated from my interest in these areas and some very cool live conversations. I've been privileged to be a part of with other writers, philosophers, and theologians. I decided I wanted to audio stamp some of these conversations and in spectacular fashion, interviewing and conversing with these and other seekers. Many of course have and will disagree with me, but this is where I believe the magic happens. I like to use the term epistemological humility, which I believe is sorely needed as we tackle the big questions among seekers. I personally have a theistic bend, consider myself a progressive Christian, and I'm drawn to Aristotelian metaphysics and ethics. Having a science and philosophy background has really allowed, or should I say forced, me to grapple with these big questions, and ultimately has forced me to shift on a number of these views. This pliability I believe is immensely important. Certainly my vantage point and convictions will definitely be in play during this podcast but an epistemological humility even more in focus. Where the truth is, I'd like to be, despite my feelings on the matter. On that note, what better segue? My first episode featured a conversation with my friend and co-author, Adam Lee. Adam and I wrote Meta on God, the big questions, and the just city. This project initiated as a blog exchange on Patheos, where we are neighbors, myself on Progressive Christian, Adam on non-religious and ultimately continued on to our book and live events where we've teamed up to celebrate our exchange and also rallied around our shared cause of ending human trafficking. Adam and I don't have the privilege of speaking past one another about events as we're ultimately hanging out together afterwards. Adam has been a great friend and writing partner and has more than kept me on my toes philosophically. In this podcast, Adam and I discuss our project and friendship, some of the big questions like morality, why does anything exist, and consciousness, and the general idea of celebrating the big questions with others that disagree with you. As my project and events with Adam were a key inspiration behind this podcast, there couldn't be a better first podcast guest. So please, enjoy the conversation between yours truly and Adam Lee. Welcome to the first ever Soapbox Redemption podcast. How does it feel to be making history?
1: <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. I'm, I'm pleased to make my debut.
0: Right. And, and how could it be with anyone else than my good friend and co-author to make history with? Um, for the listeners, quick bio on Adam. Uh, Adam is a software engineer, author, and activist living in New York City. He's the author of Daylight Atheism and Meta, co-authored by yours truly as well as uh, a fictional series and blogs at uh, Daylight Atheism on Patheos. So um, our project, Meta, uh, is actually a blog exchange-turned-book-turned-live-event project, which I think represents, at least I hope, is a celebration of the big questions among friends, um, where it took an interesting turn. And I think where the magic happens is that we're not only friends, but that we're using our project to elevate how these conversations are had, and while doing so, rallying around our shared cause of ending human trafficking. So um, before we go too deep into our project, Adam, tell us a little about your day job, your family, your writing, and, uh, and how you took an interest in blogging about uh, atheism and philosophy.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, so as you capably introduced me, I am a software engineer living in New York City. Uh, married. i married. I have a son now who is uh, going to be turning three this year. So that's that's been a wild ride. <laughs> um, I guess writing has just always been an interest of mine. You know, pretty much as long, as long as I can remember, I've always felt like I wanted to write, you know, just thoughts, ideas. I had stories I wanted to tell. And I think when I became an atheist in college, where my writing project got off the ground was at first I just wanted to have a website where I could sort of record my own thoughts, my own meditations on, you know, why I, why I believed as I did, what had led me to that point. And I thought I might as well put some of these writings online. Maybe some people will find use from them. And I kind of got connected to this much larger and really interesting online community. I think this was in the early 2000s. And I think the thing that would later become the atheist movement was kind of ascending. It was gaining momentum. And I met a lot of really cool and interesting people through my writing, you know, some, some people who were kind enough to tell me that they appreciated it and their engagement kind of drew me further into writing as well, because a lot of a lot of other atheists I knew had blogs and seemed like they were having a lot of fun writing them. And I thought this is something I could do. So I did. And, um, I blogged for, for several years on my own before I, you know, just as a hobby project, before I made any money of it off it, I was approached uh, by a New York City media company called Big Think, I wrote a blog for them for about a year, and then uh, Pathos got in touch with me, and the rest is history.
0: Right, and now we're neighbors and co-authors together. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, right. So Look neighbors. Right. So you, um, so you wrote "Daylight Atheism." You're, you're doing your thing on Pathos, and out of the blue, you get this bizarre email uh, on on our collaborating on a project. So, so tell me and our listeners about that. <laughs>
1: Well, I got I got this email inviting me to collaborate on a blog exchange and, you know, potentially a book. And I read it the first time and I thought, Well, who who is this weirdo and what does he want with me? It was it was a very odd email to get out of the blue because, you know, we were total strangers at that point. And to just be approached by someone I didn't know at all asking me to collaborate on this, you know, big interfaith exchange dialogue project thought like this was I, I didn't know why you had picked me out of all the people you might have picked. But the more I read your email, and the more I reread it, it started to seem like a very intriguing idea, because this is the kind of dialogue I was hoping to foster, you know, through my blog, because I've always believed that if you're, if you're only talking to people who believe as you do, you're wasting your time. You know, there's no point just having an affirmation session where you agree, where people agree with each other. It's really to, to get something interesting out of your writing, you have to have that, like, that clash, or at least that contrast of perspectives. And I think when you exchange ideas with someone in good faith, that's where, you know, that's where the real magic of writing happens, the chance to change other people's minds and maybe have your mind changed in return. So after after due consideration, I thought this project you were proposing was right up my alley and you know, and we embarked on it together.
0: Yeah. And you know, as as you've heard me um refer to myself as the doubting theist and um maybe my introductory email or, or later in the book or our blog exchange, but I definitely had a fairly specific interest in um intellectual depth, philosophical depth, like you said, good faith. And after writing my first book um, and watching some of these conversations, whether it's philosophical or political, I was discouraged at really the tone of these conversations. And I really wanted to go deeper and understand these things. So I I was drawn to your writing and, and the good faith that you're espousing. And so, uh, you know, well, I'm glad we did it. So what, what, Along the way, what, what, did you, um, what did you learn or shift on or change your views throughout either the, the blog or the book or any of our live events?
1: Well, I think being in, in touch with someone who believes differently than you do, is, I think is a valuable moderating experience. And I think this is something I would recommend to everyone because, again, if you only talk to people who believe as you do, it's very easy to, like, you know, walk off this deep end of increasing ideological extremism, and it really doesn't matter what your actual beliefs are, because people who only believe the same can kind of all push each other in the same direction. If you are in regular contact, you know, if you have debating partners or family or friends or acquaintances who believe differently than you, it's a it's a good way to give yourself sort of a reality check and to not become too radical, because if you write, you know, if I'm tempted to write something too inflammatory or too harsh, I can always think you know, well what would Andrew say about this? It's good to have that, you know, that idea of that other perspective in your mind before you, you know, set pen to paper.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I've it's been funny at some of our events, um our moderators, which we've had a mixed bag, um, that have <laughs> accused us of accuse me of being a closet skeptic and you a closet platonist or theist or <laughs> I always I always find that funny because um I think we are in some. way. I mean, and I, I don't. I don't want to speak for you, but I, I think you're definitely open to you know. Hey, I have a. I have a, a view that I can be moved, and I'm open to evidence, and I like playing philosophical games, and I like considering all these big questions, and uh, and it seems that the tribalistic side of um, of both, I think, the new atheist movement and religious apologists, kind of don't like that space that you and I tend to kind of hang out in. Would
1: you agree with that? Oh yeah, I would agree with that. And I think, you know, there's that old saying about how you can, you can disagree without being disagreeable. And I think that it's, it's perfectly okay to be, to have firmly held views and even to have views that you're passionate about. But it also helps to have a reminder that people on the other side of that divide, you nor know, also human beings just like you and who, probably believe what they do for reasons that make just as much sense to them as the reasons for your beliefs make sense to you.
0: Right. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Our, our live events, cause it's been all across the board, all across the country. And even in Canada, uh, it was very cold in, in lovely Canada when we, <laughs> went. But, um, what, what have been some of your favorite moments in, in these events?
1: Yeah. Our, um. I was going to mention our, our recent, uh, speaking tour in Edmonton, which was fun, not just because we happened to arrive in the middle of an extreme cold snap, even, even by Canadian standards, that, that definitely made for an interesting event. Uh, But the other two I was, I was thinking of, um, when I spoke, um, on your turf in Indianapolis at Theology on Tap a couple of years ago, that was a very interesting event because I think, you know, that was sort of an event targeted at Catholics and the audience was mostly Catholic. Mm -hmm. I think it was, it was a fun kind of like that. It was like. It was like heated but friendly questioning I would say. And I actually kind, I kind of find it fun to face an audience that mostly doesn't hold the same views I do because it's a good like it's a good testing ground. It's a good way to think on your feet when people are lobbing all these, you know, questions at you not not hostile but like, you know, pointed questions. And the other one, I the other event I think that I really remember was the uh, the Midtown Scholar Bookstore in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania a couple of years back, which was just a great setting, great turnout. Um, you know, we started off the event by playing ping pong for the first, uh, first speak speaking slot. And then also that another massive snowstorm that hit just as I was planning <laughs> to drive home. So, you know, I ended up, uh, being put up for the night by you, which I really appreciated.
0: Yeah, that was fun. Um, you know, what's been fun too our, our events and it's, it, you're right. Like sometimes I'll hear, um, some questions posed to either myself or, or you that I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat laughing at like, wow, there's a better version of this question I think you're trying to ask. Hmm. And I, and I'm on both sides. And I always, I always appreciate that. Um, just having an interest in philosophy and science and, um, and you know what else? I've I've, heard
1: that. I've heard that term called, called steel manning as in the the opposite of a straw man, which is that you should make the other side's points for them as well as you possibly can. Absolutely. Make sure you're responding to like the strongest version of their argument.
0: Absolutely. And I think like in our book and our events, like some of the, you know, things that I think, you know, the problem of evil and suffering or, um, you know, deep questions about morality and why does anything exist at all? And these are really deep questions. And I think there's a, you know, there's an epistemological humility that when you steel man versus straw man, you, you, you really have to really take these issues in. And I've really, those have been my favorite moments is, is really kind of kind of sulking in those moments and getting to know you personally. And then also our, our kind of evolved shared cause into, into human trafficking, um, which I'm really excited about. Tell me about, um, our shared cause and what, you know, what we've been doing, what, what spoke to you about, about human trafficking specifically?
1: Yeah. Well, so in in fairness, you know, this was the, the charitable cause that you suggested for the book, but I, I agreed. I think it's a worthwhile one. And I think the thing that really speaks to me, I guess, about human trafficking as an issue is that it's one of these evils that almost everyone can agree is a bad thing, but yet it's almost totally invisible. A lot of people think of it as something that has ceased to exist a long time ago. Like when people think human trafficking, they think slavery. But there is a lot of modern day slavery still in the world, and we're not just talking about prostitution rings, but we're talking about like, you know, the people who make your smartphone, the people who pick your food. There there is so much of this kind of forced labor, even even in the, the chains of you know of capitalism and manufacturing that we take for granted. And I think this is an issue where, where consciousness raising really helps because no one is defending human trafficking. It's very easy to abolish once people are aware that it's happening, but they have to have that awareness.
0: Yeah. uh, Same. You know, it, um, it actually started, um, on my, on my wife, Naomi's heart, just kind of on, um, you know really the idea of human slavery still exists. And like you said, you know, when you hear of trafficking, you think of, is this third world countries? You certainly hear of, of sex trafficking, but when you hear the size, this just billion dollar black market and over 20 million people affected by the the broad term, which includes forced labor, sex trafficking, any, you know, loss of freedom, the fact that this is a prevalent issue of, of today is, is really moving to me and, and the fact that you and I are getting to work with Polaris and kind of share on this cause, I think really has turned some people's heads at our events and, and about our projects. So um so I, I am excited that we're working together on this. So let's jump right into some of the topics from our book and live events. Um one some some FAQs that always comes up that um I'll rephrase. So not, not all atheists are materialists, and, and many atheists are far from secular humanists. So, so how would you define these terms specifically: atheism, uh, materialism, and secular humanism that you that you ascribe to?
1: Sure. So, I would I would define atheism as the lack of belief in a god, not necessarily positive confidence in the non existence of a god, which would call strong atheism, but just the Recognition that most atheists feel the case for a supernatural divine being has not been made, and you know, poss- most atheists. I hope I certainly count myself among them. Would say that we are open. We are open to sufficient proof of this if it can be provided. Uh, for materialism, I would say, and I would agree again that there are some atheists who have different philosophical stances. But as a materialist, what I would say is that I believe that everything that exists is at the most fundamental level in arrangement of matter and energy following physical laws that are mathematical and knowable in the arena of time and space. There is, there is nothing that exists which cannot be reduced to a pattern of matter or energy. And for secular humanism. So like, again, I would agree that this is a viewpoint that not all atheists espouse. I've certainly met some who do not, but I would define it as the viewpoint that human beings are, the standard and the measure of morality and that all moral questions reduce to a question about, is this, is this good or bad for the flourishing of human beings?
0: Right. Yeah. And there's a lot there, um, that I think we share kindred spirits to, um, one is on the word humanism though. I, I you've heard me describe myself as a, as a Christian humanist, which, which definitely sparks some curiosity at our events. Um, but also just contrasting to, you know, the general term theism, uh, which I espouse. And then, um, this, this curious place between, um, in terms of metaphysics between not materialism or Platonism, but really Aristotle's metaphysics that I, that I find fascinating, um, but I, but there's definitely kindred spirits on, on what humanism is. And if you remember that, um, I was actually inspired by uh, Martin Luther King uh, Jr.'s use of the term from letters from a Birmingham jail, where he really called out the church and their leadership for, for failing to really take action and, and turning a blind eye towards racial segregation. And that's just the, you know, a real failure of, of what it means to be, a you know, really a disciple of Christ. And so, um, so I was really inspired by, by that term and really the history of the term that, you know, back in 1808 by a theologian named uh, uh, Frederick Neithhammer. And really that was, it actually started um, the term as his insistence upon kind of a classical education in humanities, hence the word humanism, which he thought was important for intellectual and moral development. And you fast forward all the way to the humanist manifesto, Uh, One through three. And uh, and now humanism usually is is thought of as secular humanism. But now there's there's these kind of three distinct schools of humanism, I think, between secular, um, religious and Christian, all which, you know, share a, a common practical aim, but but differ in their their grounding. So a little, little rabbit hole there, but I appreciate these definitions Mm -hmm. because it really opens up a fun philosophical deep dive into the background metaphysics of of really our book and our actually, and our whole project, I think too, Adam, because it's like, you know, we, we, we often agree on many practical things in the book and, 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 and practical ethics. Um, but, uh, but maybe just differ in the, you know, accounting, if you will, um, Mm -hmm. So here's, here's something interesting I wanted to, to put on you that I was fascinated by. Um, just on, you know, and, and here's another term, naturalism. Um, and one thing I found incredibly interesting about um, this conference that I saw, this Moving Naturalism Forward Conference organized by Sean Carroll, um, which they ended up putting up most of their discussions on YouTube. Have you gotten a chance to check those out or have you heard about this?
1: Uh, no, I have not. I'll, I'll have to look into it.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You had some heavy hitters there. You had Massimo, who moderated our debates, or our, our, one of our events in in New York City. You had, you know, Steven Weinberg, Owen Flanagan, Alex Rosenberg, Dan Dedet, Jerry Coyne, Rebecca Goldstein. You had a number of prominent um, philosophers and scientists who are, you know, I'd say prominent naturalists. And what was interesting, that what I found interesting, and you'll definitely have to to, to take a look at these videos, is it seemed everyone in the room um, not everyone, but most of them, the, the kind of the reigning sentiment, everyone wanted to kill consciousness, free will and morality. And I saw a couple of them, Dan Dennett uh, <laughs> and Massimo specifically, really trying to um, make a case, uh, clarify terms. But I found it interesting that all of them wanted to say, "There is no self." Um, morality, this is completely made up relative term, um, that this, this thing of consciousness is just an illusion. Um, and so, um, what, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, tell, tell me about why is the, um, and does that discourage you that, that, that's seeming to be a, a moving pulse that to be a naturalist is to kind of throw out consciousness, free will, and morality?
1: Uh, that's an interesting question because that would not that would not be my interpretation of these philosophical views, like Daniel Dennett in particular, most of what I believe about free will has come from his uh, books on the topic likewise consciousness and I think right. you know without without trying to speak for these eminent philosophers who've probably thought about the problem a lot more than I have is that they would say that we are not necessarily abolishing these concepts, but we are giving a better definition for them that may not be the same as the definition people have always instinctively believed. Like for instance, I know Daniel Dennett in particular has written about what he calls the Cartesian theater, this idea that there's like a little movie screen inside your head and there's some little self or homunculus sitting there and seeing the picture, which is just what you can see through your eyes and like controlling your body as if it were a giant robot. And obviously this doesn't make sense because then who's in that little person's head. There can't be an infinite regression of selves. So I think his view would be that consciousness is the process of, it's almost like a story, you te- like the brain is telling itself about who is the person these experiences are happening to and sort of, you know, creating this, I don't want to say illusion, but semblance of like a unified self that is making its way in the world where really the, the actual procedures that are involved in giving rise to a conscious being are far more complex than that. I think there's always been this fear that by explaining something, it's the same as explaining it away and that it will like dissolve in this universal acid of philosophy. I think that this, <laughs> um, this philosophical principle I heard that really matters here. Uh, I forget who coined it, but it says it all adds up to normality. So the experiences we have of being a conscious creature and of possessing the will to choose as, to choose as we see fit, I think these, you know, these tendencies will still exist. These these feelings will still exist. They will not go away just because we understand the physical processes that happen to underlie them. We may, though, discover that they work differently than the way we've always pictured or believed that they work.
0: Right. Yeah, it was interesting, Adam, because you had Dennett um, and, re- and Massimo, too, who, as you know, um, really appreciates virtue theory and Stoic philosophy Making a case for humanism, definitely definitely clarifying what we mean by the you know the word free will and consciousness because I think it does need to be clarified but but just the kind of the ethical aim uh, back to the you know idea of secular humanism and naturalism, and what does that mean it was it's fascinating watching these ethical schools of consequentialism and virtue theory and how naturalism kind of intersects this, and where you you write an appropriate level of skepticism um gone too far is is just an acidity that that kills really any sort of view right so it's really interesting uh definitely check those out and and get me your thoughts because uh it was just very cool to see folks um, within, you know, the kind of the, the viewpoint of naturalism really just go at it on these concepts. And I found it really germane to our <laughs> our discussions. And um, and it's interesting, you know, what what, what I'm seeing happening right now. Um, and you'll have to let me know your thoughts on, you know, on the idea of consciousness, just because I'm fascinated is you're seeing, I think people obviously realize that that there's no, as 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 Descartes erroneously thought, a place in the pineal gland that Adam exists, uh, the eye of Adam. Um, we we we're understanding neuroscience now. We're understanding that that the self is 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 really a, a emergent phenomenon of of lots of complex systems working together. Um, but then it brings up the idea of, you know, this the this aboutness of 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 the experience of you know what it's like to have the the lights on, if you will. Um I heard an interesting podcast with uh with Rich Roll and Annika Harris just to talking about her book Consciousness. And it seems that there's these this this very real realization that um it is somewhat spooky and there's, and there's lots of, I think, paths that different, uh, even naturalists are taking towards somewhat of a panpsychism to say, okay, it's, this is obviously not brain stuff to, to, to be able to have the lights on and, and have this subjective aboutness. Maybe the fundamental nature of reality is actually mental and you're actually seeing, you know, prominent atheists and, and, and materialists, um, or not materialists, but prominent atheists actually kind of lean in this direction um, to kind of make sense of consciousness because I think the old school dualistic uh, idea of the soul interacting with the body has has really, I mean, I, I mean, it seems everyone is trying to update what consciousness is. What's your view on consciousness, Adam?
1: Well, I think that when something seems mysterious, as as consciousness can. It is usually a sign that we don't know yet what the right question is to ask. And I think there are, there are parallels to this with the way that other kinds of scientific knowledge has advanced. You know, it was for, for instance, it was once thought that the stars and the planets that orbit the Earth were made of this special, pure, heavenly stuff that, you know, eat the, the luminous ether that was unlike anything that has ever existed on Earth. And the idea that you could ask what the stars were made of, a lot of people theologians would have dismissed this as a nonsensical or unanswerable question. And, you know, it's once we kind of learned about atomic theory and the periodic table and the way it unites both phenomena on earth and phenomena in the skies under the same explanatory framework, then we started to be able to figure out what the right questions were to ask. I think consciousness is something like that. And I think our understanding of how the brain works is very much in its infancy. Now, I think we know at a basic level that the proper functioning of the brain is what produces the mind. Because when the functioning of the brain is disturbed, we can see corresponding disturbances in the mind, almost any kind of change in identity or personality or behavior you can imagine has been observed to result from brain damage. But the question of how the properly functioning brain produces the experience and the sense of self we experience, I think that is just That is probably going to be the deepest and most fundamental question that science has ever confronted. And I think we've only just even begun to possess the tools that would allow us to begin investigating it. you may have heard, you know, Elon Musk and some other scientists are just now working on the system of very fine grained wires they can implant in the brain like a mouse brain for now to record the firing of individual neurons. I think that kind of level of insight and evidence is is what we're going to have to have before we can start asking useful and meaningful questions about how the brain creates the mind as we experience it.
0: Right. And it's interesting, right? Because as, as someone very interested in science and philosophy, like yourself, you're right. We're, we're trying to understand, okay, well, now we can map out, you know, neurons firing and now we can do, um, you know, now we can look in the fMRI and understand imaging and, and, and see what's going on. Um, And so I think I appreciate that. But there's also, you know, this thought that there's, you know, that and learning uh, as much as you can learn about what's going on at the at the level of the brain. There's still this metaphysical and existential being uh, of, of, as you said, this subjective experience that. Many feel is just it's just a different ontological thing than learning about how the brain works, and so um, so I think it's an intre- I, I think I, I'm not at all surprised that folks that are interested in in consciousness are also the same folks interested in metaphysics and philosophy of religion. I mean, it's really one of the deepest questions, and um, I actually see that um, uh, you know in the same vein as as the the whole why is there something rather than nothing. To me, it's the same actual thing about what does the science tell us, and then we eventually reach a point where we say, "Okay, well, that's that's all that science has to tell," and then there is ultimately a, a a really a metaphysical position that you say we don't know enough, and 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 this is you know we have reason to believe X or Y, and um, so tell me, Adam, in your opinion, uh, two questions: why, why is there something rather than nothing? And um, are we one universe or are we part of a multiverse? In your yeah, opinion. Quest.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, this is something I've said before. I think this, this is gonna sound like dodging the question, but it's not. I think the question of why is there something rather than nothing, although it sounds like a meaningful arrangement of words, I don't think it is. Because any answer you could give to that question would presuppose the existence of a something from which to, you know, to generate the phenomena that you were discussing. Right. You know, um, I, I don't know, I can't picture in my head what it would mean for there to never have been anything anywhere. You no, know, no, no parallel universes, no cosmoses beyond our own, just nothing anywhere for all time. Right? I feel like my brain just rebels trying to hold that picture in mind. It can only, I can only conceive a stuff.
0: Adam, did we uh, did we lose you? Can you hear me? I got you now. There you go. You were saying oh,
1: sorry. Sorry, did I drop out?
0: Nope. You were just quiet for a second there. Maybe you go back oh. thirty seconds or so.
1: Oh, I, okay. Let me let me repeat my last answer then. I was. You still hearing me? Yeah, I got you. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I was, I was going to say that the, the question, why is there something rather than nothing, although it, it consists of words arranged in a grammatical order, but I'm not convinced that it expresses a meaningful proposition. Because I can picture nothingness, but only within the context of a pre-existing something. You know, any answer you could give to that question of why is there something would have to invoke some pre-existing space or law or principle from which to generate the phenomena you're talking about. And I feel like when I try to conceive of the idea of there being nothing, nothing ever having existed anywhere. My brain kind of rebels at grasping that I can only, I can only imagine it within the context of the pre-existing universe.
0: And let me so, ask you, let me ask you this, when you feel, um, this whole idea of a, of a necessary, um, first cause of, 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 of the necessity of which all contingent things depend Usually, takes theistic vocabulary in the tradition of Aristotle, and as you know, in our book and our events, do you actually follow that reasoning and say that actually sounds okay? But why does it need be theistic, or do you, or do you have a fact kind of idea about existence?
1: I think this is another of those things where it's good to have some ontological humility, and I think that is certainly one of the possible answers to the cosmological argument, which is that. You could postulate that there is indeed a necessary first cause, but there is no reason to believe or even to suspect that that first cause has any resemblance to the gods that are are believed in by humans. If anything, I think if there is a first cause, using the principle of, of Occam's Razor, I would say the first cause should be something very simple, not some kind of complex intelligent being that is in the habit of creating universes, because that would just be one other thing whose existence itself need to be explained. Perhaps there is some sort of you know universe generating principle, or I don't know quantum vacuum or mathematical law. But I'm I'm content to leave that to the scientists. I feel like the more we learn about the universe, the closer we will come to be able to conceive of a meaningful answer to that.
0: Right, and I <clears throat> it's been interesting for me um, looking at let's say Sean Carroll's work on parallel universes and even like Max Tegmark on, on kind of the mathematical universes, these are thought of, I mean, in, in the traditionally naturalistic sense, these are far out, right? I mean, this is kind of doesn't mesh well with materialism. The idea of all these multi, you know, parallel universes that, that, that the ultimate foundation of reality is, is mathematical. Um, now I actually think it's kind of cool philosophically that, 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 that naturalists are, are thinking like this. Um, cause, cause I'm certainly open-minded to it. Um, but it's interesting that there's lots of atheists and naturalists, very uncomfortable with some of these far out ideas. Um, and even I think Lawrence Krauss in his book, a universe from nothing, a lot of, I mean, it was, he was really hammered for, from scientists and philosophers saying, you know, this was ultimately a play on words. You, you even admitted that, you know, quantum vacuums are not nothing. Right. So I think you're onto something, Adam, when you say that, you know, right. I mean, this whole first cause or necessity of which things depend, these timeless ideas, um, I think, I think they have merit. And I think some of the best, I'd say naturalistic uh, responses I've seen don't necessarily take a brute fact um, sort of dismissal. They, They take somewhat of an ontological humility, like you said. So that's um, and that's encouraging. So what do you, do, so are you, you know, are you thinking Adam, there are parallel universes if you had to bet, I mean, uh, with all the, you know, how, how we need to exist, all this stuff you're seeing about mathematical universes, parallel universes, um, you know, it, is there another version of Schrodinger's Adam's cat, you know, right now telling me to, you know, scratch off on this podcast. What say
1: you? Oh, <laughs> I feel like I wouldn't even know how to begin estimating the odds on this, but I read, I read a very interesting argument for that, which is that if the universe is infinite in extent, then every possible arrangement of matter and energy must exist somewhere, possibly unimaginably far distant from, from the time and place where we're having this conversation. But just through sheer chance, if, if the universe is limitless, then everything that can happen must happen somewhere. In that possible sense, you could, you could say that there are parallel universes. You know, if the universe is not infinite in extent, then when you reach the end of it, what happens? You know, is there a wall? Like, how, how do you know you've come to the end of the universe? So I, I would say that it's, it's certainly, it's a possibility. It's an intriguing possibility. And it, it makes my head hurt a little bit. <laughs> because if there, are, if there are infinite parallel universes, then is there, is there moral significance to anything we do? Or is this just, this just happens to be the universe where events took one course rather than another? i I don't know how to feel about that. I feel like you could argue that the existence of parallel universes might rob our existence of some kind of its moral weight or significance, but if if parallel universes exist and they exist, and how we feel about it is not relevant.
0: right, and you know what's interesting to me, Adam, and I thought I'd get your take is you know because there's you know really no i mean. I don't want to say no, but empirical access to these sort of metaphysical postulates is it's actually somewhat you're it's somewhat metaphysics, right? Meandering as science. And, and these things in principle aren't empirically proven or, 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 or can be proven. So they're, they're, they're really a, they're, they're sort of an interpretation upon the best evidence we have in this universe, knowing we can't have an answer to that, to that universe, And so it, it sniffs a lot like metaphysics. Now I I love that. I actually, I'm okay with it sniffing like metaphysics, but I, I I find that a number of sort of religious apologists are are pointing their fingers and laughing. And and another, uh, another group of, of really, I want to say brute fact or, um, folks that just don't want to talk about the big questions or that are just very assertive, um, on, I'm not interested in this, just a very confident skepticism, It seems that this place of of, of just kind of being open to this, um, yeah, you're right. I think it makes your head hurt, but I think there's something something to uh, being humble with these questions.
1: Yeah, and certainly science does shade off into metaphysics. You know, at the limits of human knowledge, just because science, by its nature, has to be based on empirical evidence, and when we reach, we become when we're verging on areas where we have no empirical evidence, all we can really do is speculate. You know based on make the best guesses we can. And there, I agree there is something metaphysical in that. But I think it's perfectly fine from an atheist standpoint to maintain, like you said, like this epistemological humility or agnosticism where you can just say that these parallel universes and, you know, things like that just happen to be the best philosophical explanations we have right now, but we have no attachment to them. If some evidence should turn up that shows something different, we, we will happily go with that as an alternative possibility.
0: Yeah. And I, um, so question for you, Adam, on, uh, I, I, you and I are always asked these questions at our debates. Cause we're always, um, we, we have so much empathy for each other's views that people are like, okay, which one's the skeptic again? And which one's the, uh, <laughs> which one's the, um, which one's the theist, what, um, what, uh, you know, we, and, and I think this has been asked of you a number of ways how often or when are you um, drawn to not necessarily Christianity or, or Hinduism or what have you, but um, um, sort of a generic theism or Spinoza's God, or, I mean, you've talked a little bit about this as your events, but um, when do you ever have this sort of, uh, this sort of feeling either in nature or either, you know, looking at philosophical arguments, do do you have, uh, you know, some empathy towards that?
1: Well, I feel like, anyone, either atheist or a theist, does have to adopt the stance of humility sometimes or the sense of cosmic awe and wonder when you're faced with something just inconceivably vaster than yourself. And you can you know you can conceive of that experience in any terms you want. But you know, we have these profoundly transcendental experiences of being confronted with the beauty and the complexity and the immense size and scale of nature. There are people who would attribute this feeling to God and there are people who would attribute this feeling the universe, and there are, there are some people who, you know, kind of straddle that divide a little bit, like um, Einstein's God, which he, he said was like the universe as far as our science allows us to understand it. I think that, you know, because these, these experiences of awe and wonder are accessible to all human beings, atheists should understand that they are real and they are powerful and that they probably are the basis for many of the world's religions in some, in some form.
0: Right, right, and I think um, in my writing and and I've been interested in you know the, sort of just the the big questions that are you know somewhat purely philosophical and metaphysical that 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 really don't have a religious tradition. It's just the ancient Greeks trying to figure out how you know how did we get here and why are we here, and then you have some very interesting experiences happening at the level of the brain that you and I have talked about with Andrew Newberg's research in neurotheology and you have these very real things happening when people are describing this oneness or in meditation or prayer and uh, and I agree it's 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 accessible to all that that you know in our species um, but you're actually having these profound things happen that I think a number have said is this, was this just an evolutionary advantage was this just something over time you know kind of a herd morality that that this was selected for, um, but it's extremely powerful and profound and and even visible right empirically if in the scanner right? Are you interested in that
1: Oh yeah, I think you know the question of the evolutionary roots of these experiences is certainly a valid one, and some some things have adaptive explanations, I think, and some things don't, and I think some of the experiences we have. You could call them perhaps side effects or like unintentional bonuses that just happen to emerge from the way our brain happens to work. Now, if there, you know, if there is a specific adaptive reason for some of these feelings, then I could, I could certainly get behind that. You know, I've, I've heard them discussed in terms of like the mammalian bonding system, that there's a part of your brain that says like, this is an emotionally significant event, like tag it. So you remember it later. And, you know, this could normally be for like everyday things like the birth of a child that you, you want to place a special value on, but this sort of like emotional tagging module can also, you know, be expand to be applied to the universe as a whole. That's certainly a valid theory. It's not the only one.
0: Right. Yeah. It's, uh, it's fascinating to me, um, to see both sides of the coin on this. And, um, what, uh, Adam, what in your, in your conversations you've had with, um, with different um, folks with different views, what, what has been um, on this whole doubting theist calling card that I what what, what has been, um, what has been for you the, the question that, um, that gets theists, uh, you know, shaking a little bit in their shorts or, or just really tripped up what philosophical question or what, What types of things? I have my own opinions on this, but what what really gets um, what do you think? What really gets traditional theism? You know, the the big three monotheism gets uh, gets folks uh, really uncomfortable.
1: (laughs) The the, the, the pat atheist argument would be the problem evil. And I think there is something to that. The question of why evil and suffering exist in a world presided over by a loving God is a pretty powerful one. But lately, I've, I've been coming to think that there are some other very interesting arguments that merit examination. I think one of the better ones is this argument that would consist of like the moral progress of humanity, that over time we have become and are still becoming, hopefully, more rational, more tolerant, more humane. You know, many things that would have been viewed as absurd or abhorrent in the past, like religious toleration, rights of women, rights of LGBTQ people, have become just com- you know, common parlance in in civilized societies and the idea that these these ideas you know for the longest time people guided by religion did not seem to think of any of these things and in many cases it has been the religious apologists who fought the most fiercely against them but now they are they have come to be widely accepted and so what what does that say about religion as a source of morality if it is often opposed some of the most significant moral advances of our lifetimes right and then you have the but other would, side, yeah, just 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 right. one little footnote here. I would also say this is perhaps the most potent in the case of religions like Catholicism or Islam you know, say that that believe in a you know a specific revelation at a specific time or like a unique source of morality rather than perhaps the process of gradual revelation over time.
0: right, yeah, and I think um, I think the other side of that is is a number of um, whether it's been traditional theologians or or liberal theologians doing amazing um, I'd call humanistic work um, where they were uh, at least on the Christian side, inspired by the kind of the new Testament love um, and, and not necessarily some of the abhorrencies where they were justifying their, their faith tradition and doing horrible things. You also had, you know, maybe some of the, the horrific um, theologians that have done, You know, terrible things. You had other theologians sort of march right against it, and then and then the same thing on the, I I think on the view of of a number of um, of atheistic regimes, where it it, it, to me it was it's more the tribalism attached to those societies um, and people not thinking enough about the consistency of their beliefs, and I think that's what you're getting at with the problem of evil, but also this maybe more subtle thing. Um, where wouldn't it have been a little bit more consistent? Wouldn't there have been a little bit more sort of moral awakening and 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 theological awakening? If 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 you know, c- couldn't we do a little bit better? I think that's a really, um, I think it kind yeah, of into the whole hiddenness of God argument too. It's not just the hiddenness of God; it's the hiddenness of his followers. <laughs> right. <laughs> right.
1: Right. I mean, and you could put this in very in very crude terms of saying like if it is in fact true that God wants us to give equal rights to women or to give equal rights to gay and lesbian people, why has that only occurred to us within the past hundred years? You know, why, has not, why has that not been the moral standard for the whole time that these religions have been in existence if they were given to us by a divine being who had that in mind all along? Why did it take so long for people to figure it out?
0: You're right, and I think that's a fair question because when you look at how long we've been on this earth and you look at the atrocities that have occurred. And I think you, I mean, really the problem of evil itself and then not to mention the kind of awakening of, uh, of those who, who believe in God, is this the best we can do? Um, And I think that's a really interesting question myself. I've always, I've always maybe asked the question differently about this, this, is this grand drama like really, this is the grand drama of of creation and um and this is what what we do um and it's interesting, and I keep coming back to adam that um this is just my view that um and we've talked about this at our events that tribalism to me is actually the real issue um that I think threatens progress it's not necessarily um it's not necessarily theology per se. It's the tribalism attached to that theology or a theology, um, whether it's Mao's China, whether it's the, um, whether it's the Confederate States and saying, Hey, we're, we're, we're Bible believing. And this is, this is, this is well in line with, with, with our views, whether it's, you know, uh, whatever faith tradition it is to say that, you know, God commands us to do X um I actually see that as a, as a massive tribalistic challenge um, uh, that actually hinders progress, um, and so yeah, I think you bring up a good point. You know, I think that it's interesting. The problem of evil, I think, definitely is one to grapple with when you're talking about monotheism. It's kind of interesting if you're talking not about monotheism; it's it's not really a problem. Although you're, though you will ask, what what's the nature of of, of a god that um, of a non-monotheistic God, right? More of us kind of a Spinoza's God. But I, I agree. I think the problem of evil, you, you know, it, it, it really does need to hit home with, um, with, with those that do believe in God. And I think you have to have a, you have to really struggle with that in your, um, in your belief system. I have myself. And so I, I don't shy away. I like, I say, bring it on the problem of evil. And I think there's cold comfort philosophical arguments on how it's possible, and I think there's a very existential sort of thing happening in, um, in, in, in these really timeless, uh, passages of scripture. And I always think of Job and, and, and God and this, all this real interesting metaphysical language happening where, where kind of Job calls out God on, on, uh, on this topic. And it's, it's very deep, the response, um, so it's been, uh, good. What about atheists, Adam? What I have some ideas myself, what, what makes atheists stew um, in their shorts a little bit on the big questions, um, or what have you stewed on where, where a theist or, uh, or someone maybe just not an atheist, just maybe an agnostic or maybe a, a, a deist or something, um, maybe wouldn't stew as much as an atheist or a naturalist. Hmm.
1: Well, I think you know I think we've gone over like these, these big questions like consciousness and free will and the existence of the universe. you know that, those are the kind of questions that everyone ought to lie awake pondering at least once. I think for me, something that has been a real come as a real unpleasant shock to me has been as you said these these same tribalistic impulses are very much present within the atheist community as well, and unfortunately, you know there have been there have been some major divides among atheists on you know a political axis on when it comes to women's rights, when it comes to online harassment, when it comes to civil rights and racial equality, there has been a lot of, I would say, painful awakening among progressive elements of the atheist community, particularly in, in the last couple of years since 2016, to learn that, you know, we are not, although some atheists think this, and I, I very much do not agree, some atheists think that, you know, we are the enlightened ones. We know what is best for everyone. We just have to issue proclamations from our armchairs. And I think it's it's come It's come as unwelcome news to a lot of atheists that we have at least as much moral work to do to make ourselves like a truly welcoming and tolerant and compassionate community. If, if we are the humanists we claim to be, we need to do more to start acting like it.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I agree. I think um, one thing I think about when I look at kind of the – really the history of the word humanism and maybe the future of the word humanism is – it seems humanism is the common denominator of, of the person that looks out into the cosmos and says, um, "I can impart meaning and I am meaningful and and so are others. And it's interesting whether you're a theologian or an atheologian, whether it's Mao's China or Nazi Germany, it seems when humanism gets clouded, whatever your metaphysics are underneath. Um, bad things happen. <laughs> and as I said, in our book, I mean, um, let's go, uh, let's go fight for, for, uh, ending human trafficking and, and, uh, you know, we'll debate on the, on the metaphysics on the ride over. I, I really see humanism as the common denominator and as the way out, uh, for, for everyone to value, uh, I mean, I mean, this gift we have life and, and others. And so, um, I think when that gets lost, um, we get into trouble, Adam. So, um, well, Adam, tell me, I mean, speaking of, of, of common denominator, um, where we are today (laughs) and tribalism, um, this place we find ourselves in this highly polarized and tribal time, um, our project, are you, um, well, our model of conversation, our project, our endeavor, are you, um, are you excited, Adam, or are you, um, are you discouraged at what you're seeing and, and how does our project, uh, intersect that?
1: Oof, that's a tough one. I, I would say given, given the polarized state of the world as it is now, and some of these really big, serious problems that we seem further than ever from being able to solve, I am less optimistic than I used to be, but I think it always is going to come back to dialogue and that, the only way to make moral progress is through greater understanding, which inevitably leads to greater tolerance. So I think projects like ours still have value. I mean, I I wish I could have like rewritten or added an addendum to our book in the era of Trump. But I, <laughs> I feel like there, there would have been so much to say about that, that you know we finished writing the book before that election. But I think there is still going to be value in projects like ours, because I think so much of the evil in this world, as you said, comes from... From tribalism, from the failure of empathy, and from these bigotries that are rooted in ignorance, and I, I hope that being able to reach across these ideological lines, you know, it can only help. That's I don't I don't know if it's going to solve the world problem all by itself, but we have to start somewhere.
0: Yeah, I, I do. I think uh, something about grassroots change um, with our project, Adam, with actually with any project, when you talk about an awakening. Um, I think it takes that. I think it takes lots of grassroots, um, day at a time, start in your community projects like these. I mean, I, I think that's what makes all the difference in the world. It's just sometimes snail speed <laughs> to, to, to make happen. But I, but I think it's, you know, infinitely important. Um, so Adam, uh, tell us a little bit about your, your writing right now. Um, what, what you just, you just, uh, finished your last book in your series and you know, your, your kind of fictional series. Tell us about that. And then what else is on, uh, on track for, for nonfiction and what's next?
1: Well, yeah, I've been, um, on my blog, I've been writing a lot about Ayn Rand these past few years. It's kind of, you know what I said about these regressive elements in the atheist community of which her philosophy I count as one. And I am, I'm working on a new novel, I plan to start serializing through the blog very soon that is actually going to explore a lot of these issues in greater depth, like climate change and economic inequality and the question of, you know, is, is political utopia possible? Can, can ordinary people come together to bring it about? Uh, the, the book is going to be called Commonwealth, and I'm going to begin publishing it very soon. So we'll see where that goes.
0: Oh, fantastic! And and tell us and non or excuse me, fiction. Tell us about your um, your latest book, or or I guess the, the that's the completion of the series.
1: It's it's sort of fiction and non-fiction at once. It's the um, it's it's non-fictional ideas expressed in a fictional format.
0: Excellent, excellent. And for those uh, those interested, you can uh, definitely check out Adam's blog at uh, at Pathos at Daylight Atheism. And, uh, and definitely, uh, follow Adam and I at our next live event, And, uh, we try to do a couple a year and, uh, and, and kind of raise, uh, funds and awareness, um, for, uh, for really, a, a big, uh, a big question evening among friends moderated usually by philosophers or theologians, uh, at various venues, um, coming to a, a venue near you. So, um. So Adam, uh, thank you again for, uh, for your, uh, collaboration on this, uh, on this project, your friendship and, uh, and jumping on, uh, the Soapbox Redemption, uh, first uh, ever podcast today.
1: My, my pleasure. It's good. It's good to be here. Always good to have one of these conversations.
0: All right, Adam, we'll let you go. Thanks a lot.
1: Thank you too. Bye.